0: Thank you for tuning in to a Centerpoint Church message. Our mission is to help you take the next step in your relationship with God. We hope this message achieves that and inspires you to both grow in your faith and live it out today. Enjoy. Good morning, you guys. Yes, Erin deserves a clap, especially for that orange hat. Sadly, I do not own any orange, so I will not be attending Fleet Farm this afternoon. Um, Before we get started this morning, I'd like to pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us your word to guide us and to teach us and to show us your love and to communicate to us how you want us to live our lives. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who dwells within each of us who know you and for the role that he plays in um, teaching us as we hear your word spoken. I pray that the Holy Spirit would be just touching each of our hearts this morning as we look at your word and what it says, and I pray that we would respond to you with um, just obedient and joyful hearts, because we know that you love us, and everything that you tell us to do is for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to start this morning by telling you about some friends of mine. Kevin and Maddie. These are not actually their real names. These are actually the names of a couple on a cheesy Hallmark Christmas movie that we watched last week. I stole their names because I didn't have any ideas, by the way. In case you are worried at all, Kevin and Maddie and the movie did find each other in the end despite all the obstacles. I was surprised <laughs> completely. Anyway, I actually wrote in my notes here. At here at Center Point, you may have heard about life groups. Yes, you have, because Aaron just talked about them. And like he said, life groups are groups of maybe, you know, eight to 12 people or so who get together outside of Sunday mornings to study the Bible and encourage each other. They are awesome and I really encourage you to go check one out if you're not in one already. Um, Back when my husband and I lived in another state, we actually led a huge life group. It was basically a small church. It did not have eight to 12 people. It had like 30 when you counted up all the adults and all the kids. Um, It was loud and it was chaotic with toddlers and food and toys and coffee cups everywhere by the end of the night. And we met on Fridays. So it wasn't uncommon for people to hang out Long into the evening, after the formal you know, Bible study was over, we would have people just lounging on our couch until 1 a.m. And that is because, for many of us, that life group was our family in the area. We had started out as a bunch of strangers who had never met each other before, and somehow we had ended up becoming the dearest of friends, the kind of friends who shared holidays together and babysat each other's kids and did each other's laundry when someone was sick. We actually had a running joke with each other that, you know, they say the group that plays together stays together. We said the group that stays together is the one that washes each other's dirty underwear. I mean, because we did that for each other. So into this life group came Kevin and Maddie. Um, They'd been invited by a friend who used to be in the group. So one Friday night, they they decided to take a chance and show up and check it out. What we did not find out until many weeks later is that the woman who had invited Kevin and Maddie to come to Life Group had not disclosed to them ahead of time that it was a Bible study. She just said, hey, you know, I got these friends. They get together for dinner on Fridays. You would, you would love them. You would love these people. You should go. And so imagine their surprise when they showed up that first night expecting to attend a dinner party, and then found themselves sitting in a room full of crazy Jesus people with Bibles. And by the way, I do not recommend this as a way of introducing people to Jesus. I mean, full discourse is always, I think, probably better than bait and switch. But, anyways, for Maddie, this Bible study thing was not a problem. I mean, she had grown up going to church. She believed in God. But for Kevin, whoa, it soon became clear that our new friend was not into Jesus. And it's not just that he was kind of, Unsure about what he believed he believed very firmly that there was no God whatsoever But he still stayed that first night. He didn't run when he heard the word Bible and then he came the next week And the next and the next after that for years Now the only reasonable explanation that I can possibly give for why an atheist would give up his Friday nights every week for years on end to attend a Bible study with a bunch of Christians is that Kevin really liked what he saw and experienced there. He made friends, he was loved, he was accepted with all his rough edges and everything. He watched these ordinary people demonstrate a rather extraordinary kind of love. The kind of love that knew everyone's dirty laundry, both figuratively and literally, and still loved each other anyways. You know, I really think that Kevin Kept coming to Life Group because he got a taste of something that Jesus said to his disciples in John 13. Here's what Jesus said to his friends. I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. I heard somebody once say that one of the greatest arguments against Christianity is Christians. Who say that they love God with their mouths and then they go out and do the exact opposite with their life. But I have to also say, because Jesus himself did, that one of the greatest arguments for Christianity is also Christians. If they love each other the way that Jesus loves. Now this command from Jesus is found in a larger context of chapters, chapters 13 to 17 of John. They're sometimes called the upper room discourse because The setting was actually an upper room in Jerusalem, where Jesus was celebrating the Passover with his disciples. It was actually the night before he died. If you have a Bible that prints Jesus' words in red, you'll notice that the vast majority of this section is in red because it's like Jesus is just pouring his final words of love and comfort and encouragement, instruction to his life group, so to speak. He had this group of men who he loved. A group of men that he was going to trust to spread his message throughout the whole world after he was gone. And I really encourage you to read all five chapters on your own, John 13 through 17. Today, though, I'm just going to share a couple of things that Jesus said that evening. Because his words provide direction for how we live in relationship with each other. And even how we approach politics, which is what this series is about, talking points. You know, the perfect blend of religion and politics. Um, Three times during the Upper Room Discourse, Jesus mentioned something to the effect of, like, this is how the world is going to know me. In chapter 13, which we just read, he says, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. In chapter 14, he says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. And then in John 17, Jesus is actually praying for us. And he says, may they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. So Jesus says these things, our love for one another, his obedience to the Father, and our unity within the church would all be signs to a watching world that we belong to him and that he is real. And two of those things are up to us, our love and our unity. So first, let's look at love. Jesus said, love each other. This is John 13, just as I have loved you, You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. You know how we treat other followers of Jesus, it really matters. It's not just like a a casual thing. It matters because our love for one another is actually evidence to all the Kevin's of the world that our faith is really legit. That Jesus is real now. I don't think anybody would say, you know, I object to the whole idea of loving others. I mean, pretty much everybody thinks that this is a good idea, right? But love, that's a really loose term. I mean, I use that word love to describe how I feel about chocolate cake, how I feel about the movie Elf. I describe my children that way, that I say that I love them. I say love for all these three, although I clearly love my kids far more than I love cake, at least most days. You know, love has a rather broad application in the English language, which already kind of waters down its meaning. And then on top of that, what qualifies as love in our culture? It seems to constantly be changing. There's this book called Mama Bear Apologetics, which, by the way, I highly recommend, even if you're not a mama. And the author, Hilary Ferrer, says that a bunch of words in our culture have been recently linguistically thefted. And here's what she means by that, she says, linguistic theft refers to purposefully hijacking words, changing their definitions, and then using those same words as tools of propaganda. And she says, this is not a new technique, but it is extremely prevalent right now. Not only are words in general being commandeered to promote lies, but Christian words, virtues and concepts are being kidnapped as well, and the ransom Acquiescence to the new definition is too high a price to pay. And then she goes on and she names a couple words that are being linguistically thefted these days, and they're gonna make you squirm because they're words like justice, equality, tolerance, bigotry, marriage, male, female, truth, hate, violence, and yes, love. She continues later in the book, she says, this little word, love, this is an all-around favorite. Everyone loves love provided that they get to define it. Love used to be defined as to will the good of another. But now, anything that makes someone uncomfortable is deemed unloving. Today, to love someone means to blindly accept whatever that person believes, even if his or her belief contradicts reality. And I want to ask, have you found this to be true? Have you ever noticed that today, love is often equated with Just unconditional affirmation of everything. So if you do not support someone's choices, or if you express disagreement, or maybe even if you ask questions, there is actually a chance that you will be seen as unloving. You might even be labeled hateful, or told that you're doing violence to someone. I mean, to simply speak against the popular narrative can be considered hate speech these days. And I have to say, very sadly, this new definition of love is sometimes even applied as a test of a Christian's Christ-likeness. There are some who would say that if you do not affirm and celebrate another person's choices, then you are not acting like Jesus. But I want to ask, you know, is that actually true? I mean, is this how Jesus defined love as unconditional affirmation? Is this what he meant when he told his disciples to love each other? Did he say that they should love and accept not only people, but also celebrate all their choices as well? I mean, we should really probably ask if this is how Jesus himself loved people, because that is the clarifying statement that he attached to this command. He said, just as I have loved you, you should love each other. He repeated that in John 15. He said, this is my commandment that you love one another. How? As I have loved you. Now being really really honest I think we are all myself included tempted to do a little linguistic theft to Jesus words from time to time you know to define terms so they fit how we think and feel about things but since Jesus is God and he made the universe and therefore gets to decide how it runs it would probably be very wise for us to define and demonstrate love the way that he did you know Jesus he's not obligated to adhere to human opinions of what we want him to be or do. So instead of making up a version of him that fits our preferences or our comfort levels, it would be far wiser for us to get to know the real Jesus and then align ourselves with his instructions. Because honestly, you guys, he's far more good and he is far more trustworthy and far more wise than we are. Jesus told the disciples to love the way he loved them. He is the example for us to follow. And I wish we had all week to talk about all the ways that Jesus loved, but clearly we don't have time to do that. Um, So let's just run through a partial list today. How did Jesus love people? And as we go through this list, you might want to do just like a little heart check. Like I did. I had to do a heart check as I did this. And, And ask yourself, do I love people like this? Do I love this way? So here's the first on the list. Jesus loved by serving. He told his disciples, I came not to serve, um, not to be served, but to serve. He came to serve. In fact, in that upper room, in that upper room that night, Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the almighty God in flesh, humbly washed his disciples feet. That was a task that was usually reserved for the lowest servants. And after he did that, he said, I am setting an example for you to follow. If I, your Lord and teacher, are willing to wash your feet, you should be willing to do the same thing. And by the way, um, for each of the things on this list, I'm going to give you just one or two places in the Bible where you can see an example of it. But there are examples of these things everywhere in the Gospels. Here's another way Jesus loved. He loved by being just tender-hearted towards people. Um, Matthew described Jesus as having compassion for people because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was moved when he saw other people's pain. He wept when his friend died. He comforted the disciples the night before he died, when he told them that he was leaving and they didn't understand. He called them, my little children. I mean, Jesus had a tender heart. Jesus also loved by rebuking. There's a story in the Bible where there's a village that failed to welcome Jesus, and his disciples, James and John, turned to him and said, Lord, Should we call down fire from heaven to burn these people up? I do not also recommend this is something that we ask God to do for us. And when they did this, Jesus rebuked them. Why did he do that? Did he dislike them? No, he loved them and he was training them to become more like him. And sometimes that involved correcting them. When a good parent demonstrates love through discipline and correction and so did Jesus. But even as he rebuked them, he seemed to do it with such affection towards them. I mean, he actually called James and John the sons of thunder. He nicknamed them, and I can't help thinking that he smiled whenever he called them that. Jesus also loved by warning people. And you know, I think most of us avoid talking about hell and God's judgment because it makes us really uncomfortable. But Jesus didn't avoid these topics. He said he came to save the world, not to condemn it, but in love he also gave us fair warning that only those who chose to follow him in faith would actually experience that salvation and enter the kingdom of heaven. And his warning was an act of love. Jesus also loved by laying down his life for others. He said that there's no greater love than for someone to lay down his life for his friends. And he didn't just say that, he did it. He himself provided salvation for his friends, including us by dying in our place. Jesus also loved by forgiving. You know those disciples? They made a mess of things over and over. They said dumb things. They argued about who was the greatest. They all ran away during Jesus' darkest moments. Peter even denied knowing him three times. And Jesus forgave them. He did not withhold his love. He didn't nurse grudges when they failed him. Even as Jesus was hanging on a cross, dying for our sins, he asked his father to forgive the very people that were putting him to death. Jesus also loved by extending his friendship. That last night with his disciples he said, I call you friends. And when you like just stop and think about this for a moment, that a perfect holy God extends his friendship to humans, I mean, mind blown, right? Jesus loved by becoming one of us. We're about to enter the Christmas season when we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to the earth or our earth as a human being. Now he didn't just put on like a temporary human disguise. He actually became one of us, fully God and fully human. And he experienced the same things that we do, joy, celebration, pain, suffering, betrayal, sadness. Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just like we are. He just didn't sin when he was tempted. But because of that, he understands what it's like to walk in our shoes. He literally walked in human shoes. Jesus loved by speaking the truth. You know, Jesus didn't mince words with people. For example, um, when a woman who was caught in the act of adultery was brought before Jesus, he told her, I don't condemn you. He accepted her. He loved her. But he also said, go and sin no more. I mean, he did not call her actions a mistake or you just made a poor life choice. He named it for what it was. It was sin. And he lovingly told her not to do it anymore because he knew that sin would wreak havoc on her life like it does for all of us. Jesus loved by caring for people's physical needs. Obviously, he healed, he fed people, but he also cared in other ways. There's a time when the disciples were so busy that they couldn't even find time to eat, and Jesus said, you know what? Just come away with me to a quiet place and rest because he cares about every detail of our lives, spiritual, emotional, physical, physical. Jesus loved by challenging people to do hard things for their own good and growth. He once told a wealthy man, you should sell all your stuff and come follow me. That's hard stuff. But he did it because he knew that the guy's money was his biggest obstacle to a life of abundance. Jesus told his disciples that if anyone wanted to follow after him, they had to deny themselves, basically to die to their own selfishness and surrender to his leadership. Again, super hard stuff, but it's the key to abundant life. In God I could go on and on about the ways that Jesus loved but I think Jesus friend John made a really good summary when he wrote these words he said in John one fourteen, we have seen his Jesus glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth full of grace and truth We see from the life of Jesus that love is not just one or the other. It's both. It has to be married together. That's what our love should be like as well. There's this author named Tim Keller who explained why it's so important that we imitate Jesus in this way. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but it keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and to repent. And then the conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Now, if that was too many words to remember, because that was a lot of words, here's a shorter phrase from a song by a guy named Torrin Wells. He just says, It's not one or the other. It's hard truth and ridiculous grace. And I encourage you to read the Bible for yourself and see Jesus' love in action. See that he is full of both hard truth and ridiculous amazing grace. Read about his interactions with people. And as you do, remember that because God is love and Jesus is God, everything that Jesus does is an act of love. Whether he's Healing a sick person or tossing tables over at the temple whether he's weeping at a friend's graveside or calling out the Pharisees hypocrisy all of it all of it serving forgiving praying teaching rebuking rejoicing warning speaking the truth these are all demonstrations of his great love for people Jesus loved so well and he said that the world would know that the disciples were his if they loved like him and he was right as he always is. Because if you turn a little farther in the Bible, after the Gospels, you'll find the book of Acts. And it describes the way that the early church took care of each other, and they did all these things. Can you imagine what it was like? It says they served each other, prayed for each other, forgave each other, rejoiced and mourned together. They called each other out. They spoke hard truth. The Bible says in the early church that was loving the way Jesus loved, there was not a single needy person in that church family because people who had homes or land voluntarily sold those big things and gave the money to the disciples to distribute to those in need. Can you imagine how winsome this was to those outside the church when they saw how those inside the church treated each other? How apparently it was winsome because after describing all this, Acts says, each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. When people outside the church saw the way these folks loved each other, it had to lend a good deal of credibility to their claims about Jesus. And many people did respond to the Holy Spirit's tug on their hearts, and they became followers of Jesus themselves. Their love did prove to the world that they belonged to Jesus. All right, now let's briefly look at the other way Jesus said that we would show him to the world. He prayed, May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Jesus said, along with our love, our unity would also be evidence that he really came from God the Father and that he really loves us. Now, you know, love and unity, they, all, they often go hand in hand because if we genuinely love the way that Jesus loves, that has a tendency to unite even the most diverse individuals. In Colossians 3, Paul writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people holy and dearly loved clothe yourselves with compassion kindness humility gentleness and patience bear with each other forgive as the Lord forgave you and all over all these virtues put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity let the peace of Christ rule in your heart since as members of one body you are called to peace Jesus teaches that or the Bible teaches that all of Jesus followers are united as one under his authority and his leadership the analogy that's used here is one body made up of many parts Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 12 he says the human body has many parts but those many parts they make up just one whole body and so it is with the body of Christ some of us are Jews some of us are Gentiles some are slaves some are free but we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit and we all share that same spirit you know, we, we are also different. We come into church with a wide variety of backgrounds and interests and personalities and opinions. I mean, that's the way God designed us to be different. But because of Jesus, we are also united as one body under Jesus, who is our head. And when we actually live that out, Jesus says that that is evidence to the world that he's real and he loves us. Author J. Warner Wallace talks about this verse when he says, Why are we so reluctant to articulate the power of unity as evidence to unbelievers? Maybe it's because so many of us are too busy finding reasons to disagree with and divide from our brothers and sisters in Christ. I know that I have been guilty of this. While there are many essential Christian doctrines that unify us, I have sometimes chosen an arrogance to divide over non-essential personal preferences he says essential doctrines versus non-essential preferences as followers of Jesus there are areas where we can agree to disagree and there are also other truths that we cannot compromise particularly when it comes to salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ but we need to ask God for discernment to tell the difference between essentials and non-essentials because we are called to love and accept all people but not to accept and love all ideas if they are not biblical. So my hope for us is that we would be brave enough to cling to what God says is true, but also be humble enough to acknowledge that that some of our views are just our own opinions and not necessarily God's. And the way that we tell the difference between those is we study the Bible. Does that make sense? All right, so love and unity. These are the things, two of the things that will show the world who Jesus is. Now, you might be saying, what does this have to do with politics? Because I thought we were supposed to talk about politics. It has an awful lot to do with that. There's a Christian podcaster that I sometimes listen to who says, this is so good, she says, politics matter because policies matter because people matter. <clears throat> Loving people means that we do care about the policies that govern their lives, which means that we do care about politics, not because we think that the government is going to save us. God help us if that were the case, right? Right? But because laws and policies can actually be tools used for loving people the way that God wants us to. So here are a few things that I would suggest as practical applications for us, given what we've learned. First, let's be full of Jesus' grace and Jesus' truth. I mean, let's be honest. There is a lot of debate amongst Christians these days about what it looks like to love our neighbor well. We all wanna love our neighbor. We just don't always agree on how it's done. Should we get vaccinated or not? How do we compassionately care for immigrants? How do we pursue racial reconciliation? How do we honor women's rights? How do we approach people's choices related to sex and gender? I mean, these are just a few of the things that we disagree about and we have to care. I mean, these issues affect real people with real lives who Jesus deeply loves and therefore, These issues demand so much grace. These issues also invite a lot of deeply held opposing opinions about what Jesus wants us to do. And that requires a huge commitment for us to seek truth. Now, I'm not going to tell you my opinions on any of these issues because you don't need a human opinion to inform the way that you think. What you and I really need is to prayerfully study what Jesus really teaches us in the Bible. Humbly, not coming with our own agenda, but just letting them speak, because that is the best way for us to learn how to love with grace and truth, because we desperately need both. So I I just implore you, please do not just take someone else's word when they tell you this is what Jesus is like, or this is what Jesus would do. Actually study God's word and ask the Holy Spirit to teach you what is true yourself. And then very lovingly and uncompromisingly both cling to those things. Here's a second application. Let's put love into action. I mean, Jesus' love, it was clearly more than just words or feelings. He practically lived it out. He lavished it on people. You know, Jesus did not change the world with Twitter posts that let everybody know that he was on the right side of history. In fact, a lot of people actually thought he was very much on the wrong side of history. You know, Jesus did not just signal his virtue. He actually lived it. And our love, too, is meant to be active. Jesus said that if we love him, we will obey his commands which means that we need to put into practice what he teaches. So has God put a passion in your heart for a certain person or certain people? That's awesome. That's awesome. Now go do something about it. Don't just share articles on social media so people know how much you care. Ask God what he wants you to do about it. And by the way, it doesn't have, you don't have to do something about everything. Just do what he tells you to do. See what the Bible teaches about that issue that you're passionate about and then go live it out. And by the way, this applies both to like really big causes and it also applies to just everyday interactions that we have with people. Romans 12 says, don't, pre- uh, don't just pretend to love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly what- to what is good. There's another plug for grace and truth, by the way, in that verse. So what would it look like for us to really love others, even when it comes to politics? You know, maybe like I said, it's actually doing something, serving others in a practical way, investing your time, making a meal, meeting a need, giving up something that you want so that your money is freed up to be given away as God directs. Maybe really loving means letting go of a grudge that you've been holding against someone. Maybe even someone at church, you know, that person who keeps posting political stuff that you really disagree with. You know, maybe God is wanting you to really love this person as a brother and sister by just humbly acknowledging that it's okay for you to disagree that neither of you is knowing everything and neither of you is dumb. Maybe really loving looks like refusing to be easily offended. Not giving in to that whole cancel culture mentality when someone does something that you don't like. Maybe it involves giving people the benefit of the doubt and so instead of assuming the worst about their intentions. You know, if Jesus could forgive the people that were killing him, I'm guessing that we can forgive the person that offends us too, right? Maybe love in action looks like bravely speaking the truth in love to a friend who's going the wrong way. Maybe it's compassionately and humbly rebuking or warning them because you care enough about them and love them enough to have that uncomfortable conversation. Jesus' friend John wrote, in words that sound an awful lot like Jesus, he said, little children let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So let's put our love into action. And then the third thing I'll suggest is to pursue unity with other believers. I'm sure we can all um, tell about someone we know who has been really turned off to God because of infighting amongst Christians. It happens. I mean, it can be really hard to be very different, but be not divided. I mean, even in Jesus' own circle of friends, there were plenty of opportunities for the disciples to really rub each other the wrong way. Jesus group of 12 included a zealot. A zealot was somebody who wanted to overthrow the Romans by force and killing people. And then his disciples also included somebody who had worked for those Romans, a tax collector. I mean, talk about being on opposite ends of the political spectrum. How on earth did Simon the zealot and Matthew, the former tax collector, manage to find common ground that united them as brothers? I venture to say that their common ground was their mutual love for their savior, Jesus and so it should be with us. Whether we're masked or unmasked, Republican or Democrat, animal rights activists or Second Amendment supporters, I'm guessing anybody wearing orange is a Second Amendment supporter. It does not matter how we feel about Donald Trump or Kyle Rittenhouse, whether we love or loathe Joe Biden, whether we hang the toilet paper so it pulls from the front or the back. I mean, these are all Non essentials that we cannot allow to divide us. Although the toilet paper thing is pretty important. You know, our love for Jesus trumps, I mean, that's plain Trump's, not Donald Trump's. Our love for Jesus trumps whatever opinions we may hold about these things. We can disagree on the non essentials, but those differences have to take a back seat to what we have in common, or rather, who we have in common, Jesus. Our unity, you guys. It was so important to him that it was one of the last things that he prayed before he died. So it should be precious to us as well because it is evidence for Jesus. The world is watching us. So let's honor Jesus by being humble enough to acknowledge that, uh, acknowledge that when it comes to the non-essentials, our opinions are far less important than our Savior. I really, really need to wrap up. So I'm going to close by telling you just one reason why I think perhaps our love and unity were so important to Jesus You know before Jesus birth, um, the Israelites had been waiting hundreds of years for someone called the Messiah, someone who would save them. And around the time of Jesus, the Israelites were under the control of the Roman Empire. So many seem to assume that if the Messiah happened to show up at that point in history, he would save them by kicking the Romans out and restoring their freedom. I mean, even the disciples, if you look at the gospels, they seem to have an expectation of this before his death. They did not understand, the disciples did not understand until after they had witnessed the resurrection and received the Holy Spirit, that the Messiah's salvation was not political. It was not freedom from the Romans because their problem was far bigger than some corrupt government. Jesus would save them from their sin and restore them and us spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and even someday physically. The disciples also did not seem to understand until much later that Jesus' plan to bring about this restoration to the world was them. I mean, them empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would do the real work, but he planned to use them to reach a hurting world. And you guys, our world is still hurting. There is so much division, so many hard feelings, so much anxiety. The Bible says that all creation is groaning, longing for Jesus to come back and restore peace, and he will. One of the passages that we often read during the Christmas season, which is coming up, says this. And just let this wash over you. It says in Isaiah 9, for those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and its peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. When it feels like the world is falling apart and you are sick of politics and pressure and all the pain, you just take heart and remember what is coming. What's coming is King Jesus and his perfect righteous rule. And until that day comes, are still his plan. We, Jesus Church, have been entrusted with a job of spreading the message of his love and salvation to a watching world, and two of our most convincing pieces of evidence are our love for each other and our unity with one another. You know, I never finished my story about Kevin and Maddie. I wish I could tell you that they had the same happy ending as their hallmark namesakes, and that Kevin became a follower of Jesus, but that is not the case at least not yet. I pray that God uses people like you and me to just keep softening his heart and that our love and unity would prove to all the heavens that we know and care about that Jesus is real and that he really loves us. So let's pray. Father, I talked a lot. I need to close up. I just ask that you would help us to put into practice the things that you have put on our hearts as a result of hearing your word. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, and thank you for him.